Dose of Leadership Podcast, episode 184. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, Richard Ryerson here. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Hey, keep those emails coming. I love hearing from you. Thanks for all the support, all the fans out there. If you got a question about leadership, if you're having a leadership challenge, let me hear about it. I love to answer your questions. I might even answer it on the air if it's a pertinent one I think the whole audience can can benefit from. But let me hear from you. I love uh, the support that you're giving to me. And if, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. Leave a rating and review. It does so much for the support and the visibility. That's all I ask for you to listen to this great free content. And again, thank you for your support. Hey, I want to introduce my brand new partners to the show, 99designs. When I was starting out on this entrepreneur path, I stressed about the graphic design element, the web design elements. You know, I want to encourage you to go check out 99designs because working with an individual graphic designer can be good, but it has its limitations. You know, timing is one thing. If you want dozens of designs to choose from in just seven days, well, I encourage you to visit 99designs.com slash leadership and get a $99 power pack of services absolutely free. Go check them out. Well, I'm so excited to have on my show today, Todd Gaziano. He is the executive director in the Washington, D.C. Center with the Pacific Legal Foundation. He joined the Pacific Legal Foundation in 2014 as the executive director of PLF's D.C. Center and as its senior fellow in constitutional law. He brings valuable experience from distinguished government jobs in all three branches of the federal government, positions in the private sector, and as a longtime nonprofit foundation scholar and leader in the freedom-based public interest legal movement. Immediately prior to joining PLF, he was the executive vice president and chief legal officer of an innovative healthcare delivery company and a healthcare IT company. And previously he served in the U.S. Uh, Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel, where he provided advice to the White House and four attorney generals on constitutional matters, was a chief subcommittee counsel in the U.S. House of Rep- Representatives, and was the founding director of Heritage Foundation Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. He also worked a lot with Ed Meese, 17 years worth, when I'm anxious to talk to him about that. Todd, welcome to the Dose of Leadership podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm really delighted to do it. You know, a lot of times when we talk about uh, people coming from, um, especially that's been involved with Washington as long as you have, um, I've mentioned this quite a few times on the show that how um, maybe about two years ago, and really what's kind of genesis of this podcast is I got so frustrated or I get so frustrated with kind of the lack of common sense that exists in kind of that environment. How do you do it, sir? How can you stay so long in that environment and still keep a, a level sane head, if I can ask that question? Well, sometimes you do get a little tired of people who seem so self-important. But I think the way I've stayed interested is just because of the importance of of what I'm trying to do, the issues that I'm trying to help on behalf of the uh, public, uh, particularly in the nonprofit world where I spent uh, the greatest uh, portion of my career and the rest of my career in Washington was in government itself working for the public. Uh, so that helps you keep your uh, wits about you. Um, and uh, you mentioned in your introduction that I worked with uh, Ed Neese. Um, he was my 
uh, both a good friend, um, but also my supervisor in the Heritage Foundation. And uh, anyone who has spent any time with Ed Meese knows what a um, even-keeled, uh, generous, uh, kind, uh, a wonderful man he is. So he taught me a great deal, both personally and professionally, uh, about how to operate and how to take, uh, you know, uh, sort of losses that we are trying to advance in stride. Um, uh, another, I suppose, helpful influence was Ed Fulner, who was Heritage's longtime uh, president for over uh, 35 years. And uh, one of his phrases is, there are no permanent victories in Washington and no permanent losses. Mm-hmm. So if we you know, thought we achieved some sort of policy victory, someone in Congress adopted an idea we've been writing about for a number of years, we could maybe pat ourselves on the back for a minute or two, mm-hmm. um, but we needed to stay on, on top of it. Um, and if we seemingly lost a policy debate, we should remember there are, again, no permanent victories, no permanent losses. So um, I think all of those factors helped uh, keep me interested in um, uh, the important business of Washington, and, and I have to admit I, I wish Washington was not nearly as important. Part of part of my uh, goal over all of these years has been trying to uh, relimit the national government to its true enumerated um, and limited powers. Those are very, very important national defense uh, being among them, uh, protecting, you know, a, a, a federal judiciary that protects individual liberty is very, very important. But uh, keeping, uh, trying to remind people in all three branches of government that they are have circumscribed powers, and that is to protect individual liberty, has been a constant threat of my professional career. Yeah, I, I, I'm so glad that you're fighting that fight. You know, it's, it is amazing, uh, anybody who's any student of history, and you look at, at uh, and so often you hear the narrative these days seems to be, well, let's just reach across the aisle, let's just all get along. You know, the way the system was really designed by the Founding Fathers, it's almost like conflict was... Um, was was it's it's almost inherent in in the, the setup of those three branches because that conflict naturally in theory is to prevent any one branch from getting too big right so conflict isn't necessarily a bad thing would you agree oh absolutely you're you are absolutely right but even more so and let me let me try to explain because separation of powers um, both theory and practice has been integral to the types of offices that. That, that I served in, in um, particularly in the executive and in Congress, um, uh, the framers not only expected the three branches to kind of keep um, uh, uh, to themselves, but they, through the checks and balances, they expected, uh, as Madison explained in the Federalist Papers, um, ambition to check ambition. So that's right. the way it was. There was supposed to be friction. And the framers also uh, wrote um, in the Federalist Papers that Congress, for example, uh, history had shown was the most dangerous branch, at least at the at the time. And so they wanted to further divide uh, Congress 
they wanted to, uh, you know, so they have different constituencies who would elect House members, and, and the Senate would be appointed originally by the state legislatures, and um, eventually, of course, by election of the people, but for a different term and with a different um, district. And um, the way laws had to be passed, there had to be near simultaneous agreement by the House, the Senate, and the President, with a, except for overriding his veto. And, of course, the President has a different uh, district, a nationwide district, so to speak, and a different term of office. And all of that was to make legislation more difficult, because the framers believed the average tendency of government was to interfere with individual liberty. If it was really very important, the government would come together, and it does so. Um, And if you don't mind, I think that is an interesting reflection of the current administration's response that if Congress doesn't pass a bill immediately that it requests, in the form that it requests it, Congress has failed, right. and therefore the president is able to use his pen and his phone uh, to enact something uh, that's the equivalent. Well, nothing could be further from the truth that's than right. that. That's right. It's almost like it's a failed uh, metric, and we've bought into this myth of this metric that, look, they're not doing anything, and that therefore more laws, more regulations that are passed – the that's a a benchmark of success for the government, and that's kind of a flawed way to really look at it. That's not how it was intended. To your point, absolutely not. Uh, and again, uh, I think scholars and journalists who follow uh, legislation to, to an extent know that particularly important social legislation may take a decade to pass. Wow! Yeah, it, you know, it's it's it dies in one Congress, it passes in one form in the Senate. It, passes in one form in the House, it goes back and forth and back and forth. And the president can involve uh, himself or, or, or herself in the dialogue, because um, the president is always free to submit bills. Um, but, uh, you know, that can go on for a decade and, and, or, or more in important pieces of legislation. Um, uh, but the president's conception of the legislative process it, not only is, is wrong-headed, but when he, let's say, issues an executive order that that uh, purports to enact most of the DREAM Act, what it does is it kills that legislative dance, what, yeah. what scholars call the dance of legislation. Um, it kills the incentives that House and Senate um, leaders have or, or members of Congress have to engage in the compromise that the framers expected and wanted to happen. Uh, even if that executive order is later struck down, even if that executive order is unstable because a later president can revise or revoke it, even if everyone agrees legislation would be better, the president engaging in that executive action um, not only is wrongful in and of itself, but is also destructive of the legislative process. Yes, well said. You know, it gets missed. It's so, and I don't know. And I guess I, I'd like your perspective on, on um, even go back to when Ed Meese was Attorney General in, in uh, I guess it was eighty five to eighty eight ish, eighty nine. Is that my? Am I getting my time frame right with Ed Meese? Eighty yeah. eight, exactly yeah, right. Eighty five to eighty eight. What would you say? He should have been confirmed earlier, but 
but uh, mm-hmm. some people raised some red herrings in his confirmation. Right. And uh, being the, 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 the sort of almost saintly man that he is, he just, you know, uh, bit his tongue until those were resolved in his favor. Yeah, he, he does strike me. You know, when you look back, he's one of those men who um, really put up with a lot of uh, opposition and and um, in the public perception, or at least in the in the popular culture perception of how he was. It, it was definitely starkly different than who he really was as a man, and he seemed to to hold and and bear that criticism. Um, much better than I could ever could. I can I can tell you that for sure. But uh, what are the differences if you look back at that time frame? And a lot of people draw parallels to how Washington was then um, with Reagan and compared to what's going on now. What do you think are the similarities, the differences, and have we gotten worse? And if so, what? Well, uh, I'll try to uh, uh, comment on a few of them. If I reflected for very long, I'm sure I'd come up with others. Um, I think one similarity is there was, people say this is a very partisan time. I think there was, that was another rancorous yeah, exactly. uh, mm-hmm. a, a partisan uh, time um, as well. So maybe that's uh, similar. Um, and I'll probably come up with some other similarities. Um, some, some deep differences, however, um, and some are good and some are bad, uh, is that I think the uh, while the mainstream media remains about as, as, as sort of left of center as uh, it was in those days, the, there are other media outlets, uh, like podcasts like this, um, all sorts of things uh, on the uh, internet and, and talk radio, I think have helped um, uh, Americans of, of uh, different different views uh, engage in the debate or get um, other information. Um, and, and I think that's also the good. Um, one thing that's worse, however, is I, I do think that journalists held um, public officials um, to account for a period after Watergate, regardless of party. Um, I think that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm quite surprised how easy a pass some in the um, press have given uh, administration scandals, and it's you know it's unclear whether Obama is personally involved or not. But the the IRS um, scandal uh, comes to mind as one that's far worse than anything in the Nixon White House. In the Nixon White House, he was targeting his political enemies. In, in this case, there's there's extremely strong um, evidence that the IRS was targeting average citizens. Right. Uh, who have happened to have political views that were out of sync with with uh, IRS officials and maybe other administration uh, officials, uh, and there. So, so that seems far worse than than me. There's always been a little bit of skullduggery among uh, of people in politics. That doesn't excuse what Nixon did um, uh, with the so-called plumbers. Um, I think he was rightly uh, not only condemned, but it was Barry uh, uh, Goldwater, as you may remember, the Republican leaders in the Senate who went to the White House and ultimately insisted that Nixon resign. Right. I don't see the, the, the parallel from – there are a few Democrats and a few liberals who are concerned about what seems to be a greater abuse of power 
by the IRS, um, but there haven't been the same calls from them uh, to demand um, answers, and and uh, there hasn't been the same front page, day after day stories by the New York Times or the Washington Post um, on the supposed simultaneous crash of, you know, uh, uh, the IRS computers that you know, others have said are, are, are a near statistical um, right. impossibility. And so I'm disappointed that we don't have a bipartisan um, uh, outrage at, at government abuses. Hey, halfway through the show, I want to take some time out, just a brief moment, to talk about my partners at 99designs. You know, if you were like me in the beginning, I remember I was dreaming of a logo, a perfect website design, but I didn't know how to get started. I was worried about a budget. Well, that's where 99designs came in, and they can certainly help. 99designs is the world's largest graphic design marketplace, and it makes it easy for you to, to get a design that you love. Just go to their website, tell them about the design you need, and pick a price package that works for you. And that's where the fun really starts up, and this is what I loved about the process. Desi designers from all around the world will submit awesome designs, and you give them your feedback. And within a week, you get to pick out your favorite and be the proud owner of a gorgeous unique new design with thousands of designers at your fingertips there's no limit to what you can get designed i've used 99 designs and i love working with them and what they did for me so what is it that you need you can boost your brand's visibility with a t-shirt drive more traffic with a sleek new banner ad or a landing page whatever it is you need projects start at just 199 dollars and your happiness is always 100 percent guaranteed visit 99designs.com slash leadership and you can get a 99 dollars power pack of services absolutely free today go check them out is it why do we think that is i think you know the average american you know and i consider myself down there in the here i'm in the middle of the country in kansas and what you see everybody and everybody is so cynical about what comes out and it just doesn't and again nothing seems real anymore nothing seems to pass the common sense test and to your point the IRS scandal is a perfect one when everybody in that is paying any attention to that at all knows that that's just an impractical impossibility that the data would be lost and some of the things and it's just it's just so obvious that there's an abuse of power why aren't more people doing the right thing in government i mean and maybe it's always been that way but why do you think that is? Why is accountability such a rare um, value in when it comes to Washington politics or politics in general? I'm not going to give up on it yet. Yeah, I, uh, I'm with you. I'm glad I, you said I think that. that. I think one of the ways that we citizens express our our, our disapproval is through elections, and I think the this election cycle may uh, be a bellwether and and. Um, there, there may be some some members of Congress of both parties that that read the election result in a in a particular way. I think the president's uh, popularity stems at least in part because they don't see that he's held people accountable. That he hasn't. There was a. Um, uh, I wish I remembered the the author, of, but it's not my original idea. Someone uh, who. Um, claim that uh, Obama's at least giving tacit approval uh, for uh, some of the, the scandals, whether he was originally involved in them or not. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. That's, that's certainly one way in which. But I'll, I'll, if you don't mind me segueing a little bit into what uh, we do at the Pacific Legal Foundation, uh, we are a not purely nonpartisan 
public interest um, law firm um, that is a watchdog on government, and our, our almost exclusive specialty is suing governments, yes. both state governments and the federal government, uh, to uh, protect individual liberty. And I think we file about as many lawsuits in a Republican administration or a, when a state is you know, governed by a Republican governor or legislature. That's not our, our, our ever, ever a factor um, in our mind because, uh, as we commented earlier, it's government's natural tendency to, uh, and a public official's natural tendency to accumulate more power and to exercise it in inappropriate ways, sometimes for very well-meaning, uh, you know, mistaken um, uh, reasons. But it's uh, uh, public choice theory teaches us that what's most important to a public official is uh, exercising more power, making them feel more important. Um, and so the public interest legal movement generally, and the Pacific Legal Foundation in particular, uh, specializes in in looking for those abuses of government and um, suing to uh, protect individual liberty. Uh, Pacific Legal Foundation uh, focuses on a, a number of important issues, um, but we're delighted to uh, file amicus briefs, those are friends of the court briefs, in um, allies' uh, cases uh, where they may specialize in in protecting other types of individual rights, like religious liberty, which which we don't generally focus on directly. So it's it, that's something I helped support at the Legal Center at Heritage for many years, um, but I've long admired the Pacific Legal Foundation, uh, which may be the um, oldest and I think most effective uh, of the... Um, free market, uh, what we call freedom-based public interest uh, legal organizations in the United States. You know, headquartered in Sacramento, but we now have uh, offices in uh, several places in the United States. So, yeah, one thing that I love what you guys are doing, and um, you really seem to stand up for individual property rights, which really is at the heart of, and a lot of people take this for granted, I think, but the Founding Fathers knew this, that the individual rights of property really is at the um, kind of the uh, core, the foundation of, of, of all of our personal freedoms, right? I mean, the, the, the right to own individual property is not, if you look at the history of the world, um, it is fairly unique and exceptional to this country, is it not? Am I, am, I mean, you, you know this better than I do, but this really is one of the reasons why we, as a country, were so exceptional, right? Oh, absolutely. But I think with regard to protecting uh, property rights, um, our Anglo, you know, English forebears were equally, um, uh, I, I think, uh, protective of property rights, at least, but not in the not in the same way. They didn't have the separation of powers exactly. to right. um, that we developed um, to, I think, better protect property rights. But our property rights um, uh, heritage is fairly uh, derivative of of the uh, English uh, common law. But um, but I will mention, uh, I I certainly agree with you. PLF, I think, is without peer in protecting. Um, individual property rights in the United States. Uh, we've had, um, by the way, of the uh, seven last seven Supreme Court cases that we've had in the United States Supreme Court, we won all seven, and many of those 
uh, were landmark uh, property rights cases. Some prevented um, government takings without compensation. Some uh, were environmental, uh, sort of related to, to property rights and uh, 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 illegal environmental uh, regulations. Um, and there's one that we're going to bring to the Supreme Court. We're going to ask for Supreme Court review uh, from Florida. It was in Florida uh, Federal District Court and then appealed to the 11th Circuit Court, which is headquartered in, in Atlanta. And in that case, uh, uh, the, um, there is a, a beach city um, that uh, uh, prohibited the construction of any new docks, which is a common law property right in Florida. And the 11th Circuit Court said that property rights protected under state law are not fundamental. So as long as the city could imagine a rational justification for extinguishing that property right, um, that's okay. That's all the city needs to have, not a a, a real... Um, uh, rationale that, that served a, a, a legitimate uh, public interest, but as long as it could just imagine a rational basis, that was enough. And so we think that the Supreme Court should take that case and should reverse it. So can the average citizen contact you, say they got a, 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 a challenge, or do you guys seek these out? I mean, how, do, how does this work? I'm so naive to this whole process. I'm excited to know that there's a legal watchdog for liberty as such as PLF out there. But if I have an issue, do I contact you, or is this something that I would contact my local attorneys and try to work it through there? And if it gets to a, a, a stalemate or an obstacle, then you guys get involved, or, or you or do you take cases from the the onset? Oh, I, we take cases from a variety of ways, but the best way, and thanks for asking, is to go to our website, PacificLegal.org. www. Pacific like the like the ocean, legal.org, and there's a way to um, uh, report a case on our, our website. Um, but because we, uh, we, we, we agree to represent clients free of charge, free of any legal wow. uh, fees, so we're very limited in, in what, how many cases we can Absolutely, yeah. bring. Absolutely. Once we bring a case, uh, the government is tenacious, they have all of our tax money, um, they, uh, you know, rarely give up in ways that a private litigant would. Uh, they, they uh, you know, one of our Supreme Court wins uh, two years ago, uh, we're still trying, it was, a, it was a 9-0 win in the Supreme Court, even it was against the EPA called Sackett versus EPA, and uh, the EPA wanted to uh, prevent a home builder in, or a homeowner, I should say, landowner in Idaho from building a, a home because they said their property was a wetland and they wanted to deny them a judicial opportunity uh, to even challenge that. So we thought that was wrong. Supreme Court agreed 9-0. Even two of Obama's appointees agreed that his administration's position was absurd. And yet we still haven't, that was two years ago, we still haven't settled that case. EPA is still dragging it out. So to make a long story short, at the Pacific Legal Foundation, we have to look for uh, certain types of cases that we believe can make a precedent for the, the greater public. And 
we sometimes have to turn down, I'm sure, meritorious suits. Um, we don't take suits, by the way, from people who are wealthy enough to pay their own lawyer. Uh, we take cases because we're a, a nonprofit. We take cases uh, where uh, we think someone would not be able to uh, vindicate their rights without our help. Uh, but we're also looking for those cases that will help advance the liberty of, of the larger public. So unfortunately, we have to turn down a number of cases. But we make suggestions on, uh, sometimes we, we make suggestions of other groups that might uh, bring that case or, or, or how that person could uh, obtain a lawyer to help them with their case. You know, it's amazing to be sitting, but there's so many, and that's why I love doing this show. I mean, there's so many things happening behind the scenes that the average citizen like myself just never hears about. I mean, this is something I don't think about on a regular basis, obviously. You know, I, I'm passionate about everything that you're doing and you're talking about. It. It's near and dear to my heart. Uh, uh, this is the greatest place on the planet to live and what it stands for and how it was founded. It was exceptional. I make no apologies for that, and I love love this country, as do you. And I'm just so excited to hear that there are folks like yourself and organizations like PLF that that uh, are dedicated to you know fighting this kind of seemingly from my vantage point bureaucracy that just just continues to grow exponentially and um, it's frustrating and, and kind of um, and so knowing that you you're out there doing that gives me a little sense of optimism and hope so uh, thank you for fighting as long as you've been fighting in this kind of arena, somebody has to do it. And um, I don't know how you do it, but I'm glad you're doing it. Well, thank you for, for helping make other people aware of it. And so um, I uh, certainly, uh, uh, well, we, we welcome financial support as well. Yeah, sure. uh, and most of our support comes from individuals. And most of those individual supporters give us less than $1,000. So that's, that's part of what I think Tocqueville um, thought was exciting about America too. We form these organizations. We form these uh, nonprofit organizations like the Pacific Legal Foundation. And he was very surprised by that in the early 1800s. Uh, but I think that's one of the ways that that, that America is strong. So, in, in response to growing government, we create institutions to do battle government. What? How do you still keep in touch with? Ed Meese, he's has to be in his upper eighties now, isn't he? Or um... uh, he's in about his mid eighties, I would say. I think that's public record. But yes, I stay in touch with with him and his wife Ursula, who uh, they were high school sweethearts uh, many years ago. They tell wonderful stories about uh, Ed. Tells stories about how long it took to convince Ursula to uh, to, to marry him. But they're they're an incredible. Um, power together. Uh, he has mostly retired from the Heritage Foundation, which was his main right. um, post after Attorney General, but of course his part-time work is still very busy. He volunteers his time for many, many um, great organizations where he serves on the board or he, he speaks at their their convention. Um, but I think they're also um, you know, enjoying the grandkids a little bit, too. Yeah. What was the greatest leadership lesson you gained from from working so closely with him? I think it's to to keep things in in perspective, and uh, he is the nicest man. I I hope that was part of my personality anyway. Um, But some people have said, and I've heard this from from other people around town, they say, oh, good people don't finish 
uh, first in this town. Good fin- people finish last. And, and I say that's not that's not right. Ed Meese uh, proves the opposite. Yes, he got a bad rap in the press um, when he was serving Ronald Reagan, and 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 some people said at the time. Uh, Reagan was the Teflon president, so they tried to attack him through attacking people like Ed Meese. But I think almost everyone who really does know him um, really reveres him. And I think he is proof that, you know, some bad people can get ahead by being selfish and um, uh, being disreputable. But in the long run, you have much better odds of getting ahead if you're a good person, um, a, a humble person, and you give like like Ed Meese gave. And so, uh, you know, I've tried to model my um, professional career on that, and I I hope other people learn that lesson as well. Yeah, he's really one of the one of the greats of of, of that era, and one of the, you know, of course he served in the in the army too. I believe he. I think he made the rank of colonel, I believe. But um, yeah, I'd like yeah. He's he's when I think back to that kind of era, and I think back to all the great men that served and women that served in that administration. He's one of those that just kind of ranks up there uh, that I've always had a lot of respect for. So it must have been a true treat to uh, to work with him and and know him to this day still. It it, it sure was, and and um, I'd worked for sort of a little bit more of a distance for other cabinet secretaries who had their staffers do all their little grunt work for them. And um, when I first went, I was sort of expecting to assist him more at Heritage. Um, we, we built the legal center together, but he was chairman of a larger department, uh, and I directed the legal center. Um, but what I sort of found out was, no, he does his own legal work and, and a so-called grunt work. Uh, and he did, He never rested on his laurels. Uh, and I would usually try to volunteer and get other people on our staff later as it grew to help him with speeches. And he'd occasionally want us to try to find a legal case or some other news story. Um, but it impressed me, you know, I'm sure it hasn't changed in the past few years since, since we haven't worked together. Uh, he does his own work. I think there's no, uh, maybe another lesson for, um, young people, uh, anyone of, of, of any, even middle age knows that, uh, you can't really get other people to do your work. No. Uh, I think some young people imagine somehow there will be a day. It's a different type of work if you climb the management chain. Um, but if you're going to remain successful, um, you can never stop working um, hard. And when you do, you've really uh, kind of retired in place. And, and, and that's when when, when uh, people probably stop respecting you. Uh, there's, there's no substitute to hard work, and that was another part of his um, lesson. Uh, he... Uh, um, uh, taught all of us that there was, uh, and happily so, um, that you couldn't rest on your laurels, and you had to continue to think and innovate and write and and, and speak if you wanted to continue to have the same influence. Oh, that's great! Yeah, the idea of destination disease is, uh, yeah. If you start hearing a leader or someone say, "Well, I've made it. I've arrived," then 
usually the next thing that happens is a fall after that, or at least stagnation, mediocre stagnation at best, you know, it, so I love that he, he said that and imparted that onto you. Well, guys, there's so much stuff we could talk about. I mean, I love this. I, you, I, I've had a few people where we've talked about um, politics and the history of this country, and it's something that I, I would like to dive into more. I know this is a leadership podcast, but at the at the end of the day, I mean, what you're doing is cutting edge um, in terms of, of the leadership front of trying to fight the good fight, if you will, and, and kind of slay the dragon because the dragon's out there and, and you guys are on the front lines uh, doing it um, without a lot of thanks and without a lot of coverage. So anything I can do to support what uh, you're doing at PLF and other watchdog groups like yourselves, um, you always have a welcome home here at Dose of Leadership. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and to talk to your listeners very much. And I, and I do want to add one one other way of reaching me personally. I mentioned to your listeners earlier that if they want to learn more about the Pacific Legal Foundation, they should go to pacificlegal.org. Um, but if they want to uh, follow the things that I am commenting on, they can follow me on Twitter at podgaziano.org. I'm sorry, at, at just... I'm still relatively new to Twitter. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll, um, I'll have links to they, this. No worries, but yeah. it, look, listeners can follow me on Twitter um, at Todd Casiano. Perfect. I'll have links to this website. I'll have links to your Twitter account. Todd, thank you so much for coming on the show. Stay on the line. We'll talk a little bit after this recording's over. But guys, what a pleasure to have you on the show. It's been a fun conversation for me. I, th- I hope I hope it was fun for you. It was great fun for me. Thank you again. All right, talk to you. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.